I'm not going to review it at all. I'm going to immediately launch into drawing lessons and observations from this passage. The story was well understood. And the first thing I want to say is that all of these lessons are, in a sense, moral lessons. I'm going to moralize this passage. Some of you who are preparing for the ministry and studying biblical theology know that there are times when passages are moralized and not appreciated for their redemptive historical significance. But the opposite extreme is also possible. We can go to a passage and see only a historical redemptive significance and forget the moral aspect. See, there's a little problem with all of us, and the problem is called sin. And you know what sin has caused in our lives? Immorality. And you know, God's purpose in redemption is to reverse that. God cares about immorality. Now, when you hear that word, you just think, well, that must he's talking about sex. No, that's just one form. Any aspect of the moral will of God for how we should live that is violated is a form of immorality. And one of the purposes of God, in fact, in one sense, the ultimate purpose of God is to rescue us and deliver us completely from immorality and make us morally like his son. So if we're going to become morally like his son, then we're going to have to deal with immorality in our lives. And that means that at times passages of Scripture are going to have to be appreciated for their moral significance. So I'm not going to apologize for moralizing what I think legitimately ought to be moralized in this section of Scripture. And at the same time, I trust I will show you the the redemptive historical significance and that you will see Christ. So that's my apology, not in the sense of I'm sorry, please forgive me, but in the sense of this is what God has called us to do, and I'm going to do it. Number one, I want us to appreciate again that Samson's sin in Gaza And back in Timnah, when he was attracted to an unbelieving Philistine. And in the Valley of Sorek, where he, quote, fell in love. I'm not going to keep using that expression because he didn't fall in love. He fell in lust. Love is a much more principled affection than Samson felt in his heart for Delilah. In all of these cases, his problem began with something that all of us have this morning. Two eyes. Two eyes. We read that he, that he saw a woman in Timnah that looked hot. Why are we surprised that the devil said to Eve, if you just look at this, you're going to see that it's very delightful. Why is it that our Bible says that the woman saw that the tree was good? Why is it that Jesus said 
that if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, if seeing and looking isn't serious business, it is serious business. And isn't it ironic that the very thing that led Samson into many of these sinful, immoral, unbiblical, God-hating relationships, the thing that led him in to them was his eyes and what he lost when he began to suffer the consequences of sin was his eyes. And I want to just point out to you that when Samson could see, he was very blind. And when he became blind, he finally started to see. I hope you know what I just said. Why do you think Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a young maid or a virgin? Just because he was a Puritan? Oh, yes, he was a Puritan in the right sense of the term. You see, there is a relationship between our eyes and our heart. Maybe some of you are saying, Pastor Ted, I've read my Bible enough to know that the problem's not with the eyes, the problem's with the heart. That's what Jesus said. Out of the heart comes all these things. You're right. The heart is the fundamental problem. But guess what? The heart causes us to look places, and the eyes reinforce what the heart desires. There is a close relationship between eyes and heart. Even though lust is born in the heart, it is fueled by the eyes. And so we have to be very careful. This is the mistake that King David made. How many times have we made this observation? He's on the roof of his palace, and he's looking. He's not out looking like a man on an Internet screen for pornography. He's just looking. And his eyes happen upon a woman bathing. And he knows what he should do. He should quickly turn his head and say, that's not for me to be looking at, and go back in. But he continued to look until the lust that was in his heart was inflamed And he began to use his regal power and sent for her, and you know the rest of the story, how sad and tragic it is. Do you think it would have been helpful to David if he would have turned his head? Are you so naive as to think it wouldn't have been helpful? Surely not. And so I want to remind us that we have to be careful. Guess what? We're sensual people because God made us sensual. Sensual, that's bad, isn't it? No, that's good. He gave us our five senses because he wants us to enjoy pleasure. He just wants us to enjoy it his way. That's all. For a man to look at his wife and find her beautiful, clothed or unclothed, very pure. For a man to look upon a woman who's not his wife, clothed or unclothed, is ugly and sinful, and impure, dangerous. And so we have warnings in the Word of God in that regard. Listen to these words. In the interest of time, I'm saving you some time by reading them for you, and then I'll mention them so that if you want, you may jot them down. This is what the wisest man who ever 
walked the face of the earth other than our Savior and his humanity once said. He said, My son, I'm giving you these commandments to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Of course not. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Of course not. So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. But Solomon knows that you have to see those eyelashes before they have their charm. No wonder in the next chapter, similarly, he says, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. He's talking about the prostitute. I just read to you from Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 7, and I'm reminding us all that because we're fallen, And because the devil is subtle, our eyes can often be the segue to sin. And so I want to caution all of you young people who are, as I said a few weeks ago, very interested in how the opposite sex looks and perhaps how the opposite sex is shaped. You better be careful. Because you may be on your way to hell. And men, how careful ought we to be? Married and madly in love with our wives. But how careful we ought to be. I wonder what it would look like if God exposed right now every man in this room and the room behind me, which is packed this morning. If he exposed every man who's struggling with pornography. Men, get your wife involved, get a filter, but don't go to hell. And don't ruin your Christian influence and usefulness. Be careful about looking at other women the wrong way. Be careful about looking at young girls the wrong way. Be careful about television. Be careful about magazines. Okay, that's number one. Number two, see the danger in this path. No, i got to say something. It's very important. It's very important. It's in my notes, and it's highlighted in yellow. Listen. <laughs> Listen. Jesus never lusted with his eyes or heart, and that's why he can be your Savior. It would have been terrible if I left that out. Number two, let's see the danger of perpetual, unrelenting, persevering, never giving up temptation. Did you hear when Andrew read it said day after day? She's messing around with Samson. One of the commentators said Samson was a player. Some of you know what a player is. If you look it up, even in the latest dictionaries, it won't give you the connotation that Some of you understand a player is somebody whose life is about pleasure and fun 
and who, in a sense, advertise himself or herself for all kinds of pleasure. And you will see bumper stickers that say, Player University. Samson was a player. He literally was having fun. He was playing around with his soul. He was playing around with his purity. He was playing around with his Nazarite vows. But he was literally having fun with um, Delilah. And I thought it was interesting that Andrew smiled because he saw the humor. It was a little game. She's playing for money. She's been told, we'll pay you big time. The five lords of the Philistines said, we'll each give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Just get a secret. We think the secret can be gotten. We found out where it isn't. And we found out there was another woman who was willing to reveal a secret. Could you get it out of him? We'll, get, we'll pay you big money. So she's, she's doing this, and he's kind of playing a game. He's a player. So it's, it's called, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Did you see Andrew smile? So she says, what's the deal? And he says, well, the deal is, if I'm bound with, with new bowstrings, bowstrings, probably made out of animal guts that were fresh and had a lot of elasticity but wouldn't snap, I'm done. Coming. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Boom. Why did you deceive me? You see the game. Then they go to the next one. It's new ropes. We did the new ropes thing last week. They should know that. Judah tied up Samson in new ropes. A thousand Philistines were killed because the new ropes didn't work. And they're dumb enough to try the new ropes. And Samson's dumb enough to hang around a woman who's trying to get him in trouble. I mean, how much sense does it take to say, hmm, how'd they get here so fast? (laughs) Right? And it happens a second time. And he goes, boom. And the rope snapped. And she said, Samson, how can you deceive me? You don't really love me. Remember the other woman did that and broke his poor little weak heart? And he says, okay, it's in my hair. And notice there's, there's a, a weakening. He's getting closer to the truth. The truth is, isn't that his strength was actually his hair. We all know that. The strength was in God who was blessing him as long as he kept his Nazarite vow. But he's getting closer to the reality. So he says, if you just braid my hair and seven, so forth, and this and that, and it'll, it'll work. And, and he, they do that. And she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, for the third time. And he gets up, and it's very evident that he's got all the strength he ever had. And then she really breaks his heart. And she starts psychologizing and says, you're not, you're not giving me your heart. How can you say you really love me, Samson? If you loved me, you would be vulnerable and you'd be open. Uh, women, did you know women like men that are vulnerable? That means so much to them that they're open like that. You just, you really don't love me, do you, Samson? And the Bible says day after day, she worked him until, she, until he gave her his heart and he told her the truth. And again, you know the rest of the story. What is my point? My point is there is a danger With regard to temptation, when it is perpetual and unrelenting and persevering and never giving up. That's what the wife of Potiphar tried to do to Joseph, but it didn't work. Because he was a godly man. Who's behind Delilah? He said, well, the Philistines. True. Who's behind the Philistines? The devil. 
Why would the devil care about Samson? Because he was a judge and he was designed by God to preserve the nation of Israel so that someday it could produce a Messiah. That's why the devil cares. The devil's behind all of the efforts to destroy the nation of Israel. Right up to Herod trying to destroy Jesus when he was in Bethlehem. And you know why he wanted to destroy him? Because he already knew that the coming Messiah was going to crush his head. It's all about warfare. It's all about warfare. And we're in it. And if we know the Savior, we're on the winning side. Because though his heel was bruised, he has already crushed the head of the serpent. And someday he'll be cast headlong into hell. Number three, see where sin leads. Look at Samson. He's sort of an unreal character, isn't he? You can see why movies were made about him. And it's always fun for us to watch a kind of incredible Hulk do his thing. And we always probably imagine, what would it be like if I had that kind of power? So there's stuff about Samson that's really sort of attractive and fun to look at. And I just ask you now to look at him in a different place. Look at him down in Gaza at the prison with bronze shackles, no eyes, grinding corn like a slave. Look at him now. Hundreds and thousands are gathered at the temple of Dagon and they say, let's worship our God because he has triumphed over the God of Israel And he has defeated our horrible national enemy. Bring him out. Let's have fun with Samson. And I don't think it's far-fetched to think that people threw rocks at him and yelled at him and jeered at him and hit him like they hit our Savior and say, Hey, who did that, man? He's pitiful. He's ugly. He's broken. He's ruined. This is the Nazarite who was born to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. This is the person whose birth was announced by a visitation of the second person of the Trinity. This is the person for whom his parents had so much hope. Look at him. How did he get there? You know the answer. Sin. That's where sin leads. Sin always leads to degradation. You know what? Sin never led our Savior to any such degradation, except, except when he went to the cross to be our representative for God's wrath against sin. Jesus never gave in to temptation, and Jesus never suffered the consequences of sin, except as a representative. Number four, I want you to notice from our passage that we can actually forfeit and lose the anointing, empowering, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit by willfully knowingly 
giving ourselves over to sin. Long sentence. Hear it again. We can. We can. We can forfeit and lose the anointing and the empowering and the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit if we willingly, knowingly give ourselves over to sin. Thought you believed in the perseverance of the saints? I do. Thought you believed that the Holy Spirit comes to be a seal in the lives of true believers, and in that sense, he will never depart from them. I do. I didn't say that he would depart from us in terms of his indwelling. I said that we can forfeit and lose the anointing, empowering, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit by willfully, knowingly giving ourselves over to sin. Our Bible tells us that when the fourth stage of the game came, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He got up and he shook himself, so to speak, and he says, I'll take care of this like I've always taken care of it. Suddenly he realizes he has no strength. It's gone. God took it away. And I'm just saying, in principle, though there are some differences, when we dally, an old antiquated word, when we fool around with and play with sin, knowingly grieving the Holy Spirit, we can forfeit his anointing, his empowerment, his blessing, and even his sanctifying influence on us, because God will say, okay, I'll I'll withdraw from you for a while. I'll leave you to yourself. Watch what's going to happen. And we will be seriously, seriously weakened. Paul calls it grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Here's what our confession of faith says with regard to assurance. And in this fourth paragraph, it talks about losing this precious ministry of the Holy Spirit. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, various ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and persevering in it, by falling into some special sin, which wounds the conscience and grieves the Holy Spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and allowing even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. That's our forefathers' way of saying, fool around with sin, you fool around with the Holy Spirit's blessing on your life. And you may find yourself really struggling with assurance. And you should. You should. It's no small thing for us to play with sin. Our Savior never lost this abiding presence because he never grieved the Holy Spirit who was so abundantly upon him. Number five, God graciously, and this is a, this is a word of encouragement, he graciously restores his broken, fallen, ruined, disgraced, humiliated people if they are genuinely repentant. The key word is restoration. God restores his broken, fallen, ruined, disgraced, humiliated people. The devil 
is instrumental sometimes in cause, causing us to fall and to be broken and to be ruined and to be disgraced and humiliated. And then he says, there's no hope for you. And the Bible says there is hope for you. The Bible says God's grace includes the grace of restoration. You have to repent. And if you repent and trust in God again, he will deliver you. He will restore you. I believe that's what happened to Samson. If you ask me, do I think Samson came to true repentance? I'm going to tell you immediately, yes. I'm convinced that Samson came to true repentance. I'm convinced that when he prayed, it was a prayer of faith. And the New Testament tells us that he was a man of faith. And when he said, God, just one more time. But before he told God what he wanted him to do and what he only wanted him to do, just one thing. He used these words, God, please remember me. I know that I have gone a great distance from you. I know that in a sense you have removed yourself from me. But you do not forsake your covenant. You are a God of truth. You are a God of integrity. You are a God of grace and mercy. You keep your covenant promises, and I pray, remember me. And God remembered him and restored him. And Samson knew he restored him. When the strength came back to him, he knew his prayer was answered, and he knew that God was being gracious to him. There's a difference between being cast down and cast off. God may cast us down, but he never cast us off. I'm convinced that Samson shed many a tear from his ugly, empty eye sockets. Here's a profound remorse for what he had done with his life before he prayed that prayer. You know, Dave, when you chose that hymn for us today, This is what came to me. I actually thought about that when you started talking about it. That would be a good one. And as we sang it, I am totally persuaded that if Samson were given this song, he would gladly say, God, I have not known you as I ought to have known you. I have not feared you as I ought. I have not loved you as I ought. I have not served you as I ought. Forgive me, God, have mercy upon me. Now, was there some self-vindication in his prayer? Of course there was. Was there some sin in it? Of course there was. But it probably wasn't all sin because he was a public figure. He knew he had been called to deliver Israel in part from the Philistines. He knew it was wrong for them to have done to him what he did, even though it was his fault. It wasn't all sin. And so when he prays, God graciously answers him. How many times have you believe that God is done with you. I ask you to remember God's covenant. In the bondage of prison, he found freedom from the worst chains of sin. And as his hair grew, Bishop Hall says, so did his repentance. And as his repentance and faith grew, so did his strength. Go to that God, dear one, and and find restoration. God will restore you. The promises of the new covenant are more gracious and glorious 
than the promises of the old covenant. And if this man under the old covenant found God to be gracious. See, one of the amazing things about the new covenant is that the new covenant includes in its provisions forgiveness for our breaking of the covenant. The glory of the new covenant is that it includes forgiveness for our breaking of it. Does that make us want to sin? No, that makes us not want to sin. But when we do, we can say, God, is there not provision in this covenant purchased by the blood of Christ to grant me forgiveness for my breaking of the covenant? And the answer is always yes. And I want to say to you that God always heard his son's prayers as well. He heard Samson's, but he always heard his son's prayers. And Jesus even said that. He said, Father, you always hear me. But you know what? Never, ever, ever, ever did God have to hear a prayer of repentance from our Savior. Oh, God, would you just please remember me? I'm sorry for what I've done. Never. And now he hears our prayers because his son, our Savior, performed the twofold work of the perfect priest, which was to make a perfect atonement for sin and to provide a perfect righteousness. And everyone who trusts in Jesus gets those two things. The sins are paid for by his atonement, and you have a perfect righteousness from Christ. And that's why we can pray in our fallenness, in our brokenness, in our ruin, and know that God will restore us because it was purchased by his son. Number six, nothing moves the heart of God more than his perfect, pure, and holy jealousy for his own glory. Where do you think I get that? See that anywhere in the text? Say it again. Nothing moves the heart of God more than his perfect, pure, holy jealousy for his own glory. You know that um, convention, that religious convention, that special worship service called by the lords of the Philistines, which gathered a fairly large crowd. When's the last time you've been with 3,000 people? No, you have. But when's the last time? 3,000, pretty big crowd. 3,000 people come together to do what? To worship Dagon. For what? Well, for the great victory he gave them over Samson and over Israel and over Jehovah. Ah, now who's the real God? Look here, Samson. And as Andrew read, they were praising their God. You see what they said. They said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Later they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the revenger of our country who has killed many of us. Our God did this. And I would like to have stood up and say, okay, good. Where was he when Samson had the jawbone? Thank you. I like that. (laughs) I'm serious. Really? You, You sure your God did that? Doesn't he show up all the time or what's the deal? No. 
If we had the book of Judges and we lived back then, we'd take them back to chapter 2 and say, no, 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 let, let, let us explain what's happening here. God raised up you to deal with his sinful servant because he's a symbol of the nation. And he does that with his nation, too. When his nation breaks the covenant, and you see, in a sense, Samson was the type and the paradigm of the nation. I've said that before. I'm going to say it again. Don't ever forget that. That's very helpful. Samson was a picture of the nation, and they should have seen themselves as a nation in him, just like the Pharisees should have seen themselves in the older brother parable. Look, this is you, Israel. You're supposed to be a Nazarite in the sense of devoted entirely to God people. You're in covenant with God. He has told you that when you obey him, he will bless you. And when you disobey him, he will curse you. You know what you're doing, Israel? You're sleeping in the lap of Delilah. That's why the sermon was entitled that. How many times did God come to his people, Israel, and say, You adulterous nation. You're going after harlots. And we would, we would like to tell the Philistines to say, wait, okay, stop the service. No more singing. You didn't conquer Samson. God conquered Samson. He's dealing with him. But before the day's over, he's going to deal with you. Watch what he does. And so, but what, what made God, why, why was God so willing to answer that prayer? This is what I'm getting at. Is it because, oh, you love Samson so much, you felt so sorry for Samson. I can't believe I gave him to his parents, and now look at him. His eyes are gouged out, and he's, he's grinding at the mill. I just feel so sorry for Samson. I'm going to vindicate Samson. No. I'm going to vindicate the glory of my name. These people are saying that Dagon captured Samson. I gave them Samson. Nothing stirs up the holy jealousy of God more than someone trying to rob him of his own glory. And so how dangerous it was for those Philistines to worship the way they were worshiping. God hates to have his name blasphemed. And sooner or later, he will vindicate the honor of his name. And so he did. God is now not going to allow them to keep believing that. In fact, he's not even going to allow them to keep living. And this, dear people, is where the power of our prayers need to reside. What are you talking about? I'm saying... Root your prayers in, ground your prayers in the glory of God, the glory of God, the name of God. Keep coming back. If you can't tie your prayer request into the name and glory of God, then don't pray it. But if you can honestly do that, you want some solid praying ground. God loves his glory, and it's not sinful to him for him to love his glory because his glory is perfect and well-deserved. He's the only person who has the right to love his own glory. And so we should pray that way. We need to work that into our prayers. That's how we need to pray for the rest of the money for this building. And there's a possibility 
of someone purchasing some of the land that has been purchased. And I'm not going to mention who it is. That would be wrong. But pray. If it happens, it will be another $100,000. be very helpful to us. We're working hard. We're trying hard. But we need to pray. And if we can't tie that building into the glory of God, then I don't think we should. Then we have to pray with our tongue and our cheek. But if we can honestly say, God, aren't you blessing Heritage Christian School? Isn't it, isn't it an outreach in this community? Aren't children being taught the gospel here? Haven't people been saved through the school? Don't we have families in our church who've come to understand the gospel because of the school? Okay, there's a start. And I just want to say to you that no man ever cared more for the glory of God than the God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ. And here's my last point. Judgment will certainly fall on every single human being who refuses to worship the true and living God, but rather worships a false God. What happened? You know what happened. It's the climax. It's the, it's, the, it's the most exciting part of the whole story. I just love to try to imagine it. It's hard to imagine it because those pillars had to be reasonably close together for him to put both hands on them. But there are pictures of structures in those days which had central pillars. They weren't the only pillars. The Bible doesn't say those were the only two pillars. But they were obviously central. And it wasn't that he had enough strength on his own to do. This is supernatural as all of his feats were. Ten feats, F-E-A-T-S. Ten feats in these four chapters. This was the greatest one in a sense because it it did more of what God designed to accomplish in the gift of of Samson as a judge. He, He roars back and God empowers him in a supernatural way and he pushes the pillars and they come down and the whole roof falls on the lords that were under it and the lower class people who were above it and no less than 3,000 people are crushed and die, including Samson. What a judgment. What a picture of judgment. It's a foretaste of judgment. Dagon's temple is a picture of the final judgment wherein the whole world is going to come crashing down. Go back to the book of Revelation and reread the chapter about Babylon. Babylon's going to burn. It's the world. Judgment's going to fall. Wrath is going to fall. And so the message of the gospel is repent now. Trust in Christ now. Flee now. Call now. Because judgment is truly coming. And for all who will believe, the gospel and for all who understand that judgment fell on him there will be no judgment here's where samson is a type of christ i'm concluding now was samson a type of christ or not yes most definitely every judge was a type of christ either a good one or a bad one every prophet was a type of christ either a good one or a bad one Every king was a type of Christ, whether a good one or a bad one. Every priest was a type of Christ, whether a good one or a bad one. In some regards, Samson was a good type. In most regards, he wasn't. But in this regard, he was. By his own death, he obtained a great victory. Didn't he? He killed more in his death than in his life. 
and so did our Savior. And our Savior was willing to be crushed under the weight of the wrath of God so that we would not be crushed under that. That's what the gospel is about. The good news that God has provided someone to absorb the wrath in the place of those who will trust that Savior. Victory comes through death. Judgment's going to come. And that day, here's what happened. 3,000 people went to hell and one man went to heaven. And when the judgment comes on the final day, the vast majority of the world will go to hell. But some will be spared. Only those who trust in Jesus and who embrace the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Samson, and we know that we don't know all that we ought to know about him. But we thank you for this revelation. Help us to glean more as we read our Bibles. Thank you for sending the ultimate judge. Thank you for sending a better than Samson to truly deliver us from our enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil. Thank you for sending our Samson to deliver us from your just wrath and judgment. Help every person in this room and in the overflow room who can understand the gospel to flee to Jesus and to receive forgiveness. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand.